What comes to your mind when I say endangered animal? Maybe you think of a sea turtle or a tiger or a black rhino. But what about a lemur that's the world's largest nocturnal primate and has jaws so strong they could bite through concrete? How about a scaly animal that curls up into a tight ball for defence and is the most illegally traded mammal on the planet? Today we're discussing some of the most endangered animals in the world that you've probably never heard of and I'm joined by some of the people who are using new technologies to try and save them from extinction. You're listening to Sideload. Hello and welcome to Sideload. I'm your host Olivia Thomas and today we're discussing edge species, which is short for evolutionarily distinct and globally endangered. I'm joined virtually today by Diogo Verissimo, who is research fellow at the University of Oxford and director of conservation marketing at London-based charity On the Edge Conservation. I'm also joined by Bruna Capazzoli. She's a digital specialist and head of creative at On the Edge Conservation. Before joining the charity, she was creative director of Popcorn Digital. She worked as an actress for over eight years and she's written and directed four short films. So thanks both of you for joining us today. So let's talk about edge animals. Diogo, perhaps you can start us off by telling us a little bit about what edge species are, what makes them so important and why should people care about them? Of course. Um, so what's really exciting and unique about edge species is that on one hand, they, really, they have no close relatives, so they're really distinct. They really represent um, this, this, this page of, um, of the history of life on Earth that is very different from anything else um, in the planet. Um, you know, and then on the other hand, they are under threat of extinction, so they're both unique without anything else um, that resembles them and at danger of disappearing forever. And I think that's why... Um, on the edge conservation focuses on all this group of species as a priority for receiving conservation attention. Yeah, and so obviously, as you say, they're at risk of disappearing and all the edge animals are endangered, many of them actually critically endangered. But many people probably haven't actually heard of an eye or a numbat or a purple frog. Can you tell us why do you think that is? Well, so... Traditionally, very much like you, you mentioned in your intro, when we think conservation, we think uh, biodiversity, wildlife, um, what comes to mind are things like elephants, like whales, like tigers and lions, so very large animals, usually mammals, um, you know, like animals that are like us in many ways. Um, but of course, uh, there are many other types of um, different animals out there in the world, and some of them are really, really different. Some of them are really, um, ha- really have different ways of, uh, of adapting to the environment. You mentioned the pangolin, right? So it's a scaly mammal um, that comes up in the balls and everybody feels threatened. Um, you mentioned the eye eye, which really is, has a unique look uh, to it. The fact that it has this very long middle finger that it uses to uh, search for food. And so these are really unique animals that have unique adaptations. But of course, many times they... Um, they make for a less sort of appealing um, target when it comes to, for example, raising funds or, or getting uh, memberships. And so um, traditionally, they've, they've, they've had less, uh, they've received less of a focus. Um, of course, there's also, it's also the, the 
case that um, many live in quite remote areas, um, many live in only very small um, parts of the world or very, have a very restricted um, uh, area in which they live, which also makes them sort of less um, noticeable and, uh, and, and makes it so that less people know about them. And so I think it's all these, this combination of uh, a really unique, different look that doesn't doesn't make them uh, sort of uh, as fluffy as some of the uh, traditional flagships for conservation, and the fact that um, they are in many cases uh, only only existing in quite small areas, and so of course only known naturally to uh, in a small number of people. Yeah, and because of that, it's true, isn't it, that they're not actually receiving as much conservation attention as those other flagship animals that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 definitely the case. Um, uh, the vast majority, probably around nine out of ten edge species, don't receive uh, enough conservation attention. Um, and of course, this means uh, just we don't really have an understanding of uh, of the numbers. We don't have an understanding of uh, rather big threats, um, and we don't certainly do enough to mitigate and to reduce those threats. Uh, even for some of the um, most, uh, of course, even within edge species, some are more known than others. I'm sure some people probably heard of the pangolin recently. Um, it's, it's a group of species that has uh, gathered a lot of uh, interest uh, in the last few years. But even then, uh, we still have no idea how many pangolins are out there. Um, we probably, we, we, we believe the population is reducing probably fast, but we don't really have very much information. Uh, and that's for one of the highest profile sort of edge species. So you can imagine um, how, how, how that looks for a species like the purple frog, uh, which very few people would have heard of. Um, and so without some sense of uh, some information, some understanding of, uh, of their ecology, of their numbers, of where they are, where they exist, it becomes really difficult uh, to ensure that they'll stay around for, uh, for the long term. And has the this year in the, the COVID-19 pandemic, has that also had an impact on the existing conservation efforts too? Surely. Uh, I mean, I think it's quite difficult to find an aspect of, of, um, of, of our lives that COVID has not impacted dramatically. Conservation, I think, is, is really, wildlife conservation really is uh, an area that where we've had impacts at almost any level. Um, 2020 was supposed to be the super year for conservation. Um, we had all the you know, series of policy initiatives um, that were supposed to really change and really um, reinvigorate um, the way that um, we do conservation globally. Um, because we realized that biodiversity is important to sustaining uh, our own uh, life on Earth. Um, but of course, uh, with, with, with this, this dramatic um, change and uh, the impact of the pandemic has really reshaped completely the agenda. And this has meant that uh, biodiversity has really not gotten any attention. Things have just been pushed back. A lot of these big initiatives uh, we're still hoping they'll take place uh, in the near future, but there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, of course, um, on the ground, we've seen that people are no longer able to, uh, conservationists are not, no longer able to do their work because of restrictions, lockdowns, etc. Um, and so, Really, from this, this sort of on-the-ground, uh, everyday sort of conservation action to the large scale of policy context, we've seen huge impacts on um, the ability of, of, of people to carry out 
conservation work around the world, um, which, which of course is, I think, another uh, is a reason for us to be concerned. But I think it's particularly a reason for us to be concerned when it comes to species that already traditionally don't get a lot of conservation attention, which is the case of edge species. Um, and so because of that, uh, I, I think we really need to, to refocus and redouble our efforts um, to, to conserve them. And of course, so that's kind of where on the edge conservation comes in, right? And you guys are all about raising awareness for these lesser known endangered animals. So you recently launched a YouTube series um, that I've had a little glimpse of myself. Uh, it's sort of like a video diary or a vlog, which I can definitely hands up say, I am guilty of being one of those people that will binge plenty of those on YouTube, except this one's special and it has a bit of a twist because rather than human influencers, the videos are hosted by edge animals. So the I.I. and the pangolin. Um, Bruna, perhaps I can turn over to you. I know you had a big role in this. Could you tell us more about the, the YouTube series, the concept, who you were targeting with this series and how the idea first came about? Sure, absolutely. So uh, the idea came um, from the very early conversations I started having with Beth Blood, which is the CEO of On the Edge Conservation. And she mentioned that she wanted a few of the edge species that uh, the conservation raised awareness around to become ambassadors of biodiversity. And this idea of uh, ambassadors of biodiversity really stayed inside my head. And that's when we become, we start to explore uh, what could we do uh, to achieve this goal. And I very early realized that I really wanted these animals to actually have their own voice, that we wanted them to have their own platform where they could express themselves and share about their experience of how, how does it feel to be uh, edge species living in the world nowadays? How do they see the world? And I was like instantly uh, in love with the idea. Uh, often we see, uh, we talk about the species from the external point of view. We talk about who they are and, and how they behave and what the, pro the problems they face. And I was like, well, we, we should definitely be looking at how can we give them a voice. So um, I want them to be honest. I want them to talk about what makes them unique. I want them to connect with the audience on a personal level. And, and turning them into vloggers became the most natural step. And that's also connected with the audience that we were aiming to talk. Uh, we wanted the project to be an entertainment-focused project, um, targeted to kids and families. We wanted it to be a family experience, but we are mostly uh, engaging with kids from eight to nine, shall we say, uh, sorry, eight to 10. It's our sweet spot with obviously some um, other ages included there as well. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. Uh, we, I have been working with creating content for YouTube for the past six years, and we know the power of YouTubers. We know that they can connect with the audience in ways that very rarely animated characters can do. And we were excited to explore and merge all these different concepts in order to build a dialogue with our audience and, and hopefully bring these uh, characters to, to the pop culture. I mean, having had a glimpse of the videos myself, I have to say, I absolutely love them. I think the characters are very charming. 
Um, and like you say yourself, YouTubers definitely bring in millions of viewers. Some of the top YouTubers have. Um, so it certainly is a, a taking off platform. Um, can you tell us more about the technology used to pull this off? Because obviously, compared to a, an, your average human YouTuber, I imagine a lot more effort must have gone into transforming these characters and bringing them to life on the screen. Sure. So w w there were challenges from day one. Um, the first one being, okay, we want them to become YouTubers. And what makes a YouTuber is the human element of it, is how much personality and, and the ability of improvising and being themselves and just speak their minds. Um, usually in animation, you cannot execute that. And mostly because animation, to traditional animation that we know, the one that we see, in Pixar films, the 2D animation, they are what we call keyframe animated, which is a very laborious, beautiful craft. It's art, uh, but it takes a very, very long time. So this traditional uh, process of animation, it was taking away from what makes an, an influencer or a YouTuber a YouTuber, the ability to comment in the present time. So we start looking at new technologies and we opted to create our animated characters uh, using motion capture. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with it, uh, instead of using the keyframe that I mentioned, what we do in this case, we use human movements to trigger the movement in the character. So uh, by mapping the movement of an actor, uh, we will then collect all this data from arms moving, face moving and everything, and then kind of like throw it over the character. So you have a human body that is actually doing the movement of the character. And that enable us to add that layer of um, humanized aspect that it was so important in this specific project. If we were to go more into details, there are several different um, uh, technical motion captures or technologies available. The most well-known that people have probably seen in behind the scenes is what we call the optimal motion capture system, is where you see actors with dots on their faces and a lot of dots around the body and it requires like a lot of cameras we are using for this project cutting edge technology uh, we are using inertial motion capture and that means that there is no camera in the studio at all you have an actor with a suit and the suit has sensors that are capturing all the actor movement on the body, on the hands. And there is a, a camera, a mounted camera on the face of the actor that is then capturing the facial uh, expression as well. That's super cool. Um, so I'm interested to know with this new sort of cutting edge motion capture technology, what were some of the challenges that you encountered using it? Because I imagine as well, um, sort of having a human actor having to almost morph into uh, a edge animal must have come with a few challenges in itself. Yeah, I think you're being very kind when you say few. It was toned. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really challenging. But I think we all love a challenge. Um so I think that the main, the, the most obvious, obvious challenge that uh, we start having to work on is actually anatomy. So motion capture works very efficiently uh, when you see these humanoids or 
people in, in video games. Like, so you are using human body to move an animated human. What we were doing is to use a human body to move an AI, to move a cackable, to move um, a pangolin. And that became really difficult, mostly because for us as the conservation was extremely important that the animals we were creating were true to the, to the anatomy of the animals uh, um, in nature. So Diogo, for example, and all the scientists of the conservation were with us from day one, reviewing every um, version of the models, making sure that the beak were accurate, the hand were accurate, and we had to see um, until when we could be very true to the animals and when we had to kind of adapt. So how do you move a cacapo beak by using a mouth uh, of a human? Uh, there's like completely different anatomies there and what the computer reads doesn't translate into a beak. We have the snout of the pangolin, another major challenge. How do you use human face to trigger expressions and movements on a snout of a pangolin? It's completely different. We had another example, the hand of the AI, as Diogo mentioned, that has this very remarkable long middle fingers that the humans don't have. So how do you work with, a, with a, an actor and with a model knowing that that middle finger is actually much bigger than what you were seeing while you are in the studio. So uh, that's, that has been mostly the, the big, big challenge. And in order to overcome this challenge, we had a team that was working day and night, trying to find solutions and, and creating bespoke and coding to bridge uh, the challenge we were facing and to provide what the softwares we were using um, couldn't give us yet. So there was a lot of coding in the process as well. Wow. I mean, it sounds like an incredible and fun, but also challenging project to have worked on. Um, we'll be discussing digital influences and the next generation of digital native conservationists shortly. But first, let's take a quick break and listen back to the last episode of Sideload. You know, I think it's increasingly going to become an important part of uh, that healthcare system. And, and how do we complement the expertise of the vets with the, the information that can be gleaned from this kind of data at scale historically, as well as in real time about the individual pet they might be seeing. Um, and so I think there's a huge amount that can be done, whether that's you know, the sorts of things we've, we've already talked about, or whether that's tailoring care pathways, and nutrition, ultimately to create a much more individualized uh, combination of, you know, products and services to build a solution that is individualized for a pet and, and relevant for them at, at their time of life and, and given the, the conditions that they have. And we're back. So, Diogo, we just heard all about the cutting edge technology that brought the edge animals to life on YouTube. With this series, On the Edge Conservation are hoping to appeal to obviously a bit of a younger generation, potentially the next generation of conservationists, a generation who have obviously grown up with smartphones and the internet. Diogo, do you think more charities will start targeting digital natives like this in their awareness campaigns as well? Yeah, so I think that's really the only way for conservation to keep itself relevant. Um, 
we need to adapt, we need to communicate and using the channels that are most appropriate to reach the different types of audiences that we want to um, we want to get uh, support from. And so it's really no longer enough to do, uh, you know, the, the sort of traditional sort of posters and leaflets and, and mail-in campaigns and all of that. That's really not, that's not enough anymore. We need to really think about how is it that we can best leverage developments like the internet, um, developments like um, the, the fact that we now have enough uh, bandwidth for quick and, and global streaming of video, for example. Um, how can we leverage those developments to our own advantage to get the message out about these important species? And so I really feel that this is, this is an important step and it is important that we keep uh, pushing, very much like what Bruno was describing, uh, trying to uh, innovate when it comes to how we, how we produce this content being cutting edge um, in order to really, to really get the reach that, that we need um, in order to uh, get um, large scale change. And how do you think charities will change their tactics to appeal to this generation? I mean, obviously, you touched on leveraging more digital content online. Um, and I think, I believe, On the Edge Conservation have also dappled in that area. Um, and I believe you've also created a, a mobile game. Is that right? Do you think that sort of there's more of that to come? Yeah, I definitely do think that we need to be um, willing to take risks, willing to try out different things, new approaches to communicating and getting our, um, our message out. Very often, and I think traditionally, we've been very focused on being educational. Um, and of course, there's a lot of value in, in, in sort of thinking and framing uh, wildlife conservation messages uh, around uh, sort of an education mindset. But it also means that we fail to reach a really broad audience because, of course, those educational messages often appeal to people already interested in wildlife, already interested in nature and biodiversity. If you want to go outside of that group, much wider uh, group of people, we need to be also entertaining. We need to be uh, fun. Um, and so I think that's really, it's really key um, that we are willing to, to explore um, you know, new, new options Uh, new channels, but of course, uh, you know, and I want to emphasize this. I think it is also important for us to, alongside that risk, be be, be really conscious and really serious about um, understanding what works, right? So that we can change, iterate as we go along, um, and really be, be mindful of uh, of understanding if we are hitting the target, if we're not, if we, we are meeting our, our goals. Um, and as, as we move along, so we can understand uh, and, and improve uh, uh, over time. And back to you, Bruna. So back to the sort of virtual influencers um, like Lexi and Eric the Pangolin that you guys created for YouTube. Do you think these kind of virtual influencers, are they the future? Will they start taking over social media? Am I going to open YouTube and I'm not going to see humans at one point? I'm just going to see virtual influencers from now on. Well, this is still really, really new. And in terms of research and actual data, it's it's quite limited. But what we can say for sure is that the numbers are growing. Um, there is an, a marketing agency that works with influencer marketing that has been releasing some papers around the, in 2019, released the first um, research in 2020, now in November, a second one. It's called Hype Auditor. And um, what they acknowledge is that The, the 
there is uh, constantly new virtual influences being released. And that it seems as well that uh, interactions and engagement with uh, virtual influences are actually higher than traditional influences. So it's very much early days. Uh, it's still a concept yet to be understood by many content creators. And I think we are all trying to figure this out together. So I am confident the numbers will only grow in the next days. I, I wouldn't say that one day you will be uh, uh, switching on YouTube and there will only be them. Hopefully not. I think humans are so essential for us to comprehend the world. But I think um, it's not only it's important to emphasize that I think virtual influences is not only about the look. It's also about the narrative. So uh, virtual influences that it started with this idea of being like a photorealistic representation of humans. But now you have a lot of stylized uh, virtual influences. You have virtual influences that look like animals like us. You have the bee influencer. You have um, um, influences in Asia that looks like manga. There's all sorts of uh, visual uh, virtual influences. What, what for me defines an influencer is this structure of the narrative. So usually when you create a character, you create a universe for this character and this character operate within the rules of that universe. So if I were to uh, go to an extreme here, like Mickey Mouse, like you don't know where Mickey Mouse lives, you don't know what is his favorite food or where he goes to school or to work or what he does on his daily life and what Mickey Mouse is doing right now, we, we don't know. The, the idea with virtual influences is to bring them to our world and to bring the narrative for the daily experience as a, a proper influencer would do. So in addition to learning about what he's doing is about how the person is doing and, and, and sharing uh, snaps of this reality uh, on Instagram and on YouTube. And just, we are curious to know, what are you eating today? Where did you go? Which tube do you take to go to work? And who were you hanging out with? So the way we build the stories, the universe is, is, is different as well. So it's not only a visual concept, it's also a concept that... Um, that requires us to revisit narrative and storytelling. And it sounds like that that storytelling and that narrative is obviously really central and important to these influences. Um, and my question to you is, do you think it can almost go too far? Like without, if we didn't have that narrative, do you think these virtual influences wouldn't be as effective? I mean, do you think they could make people even feel a bit uncomfortable because there's obviously this blending of humans and these characters and you there's that uncanny valley feeling of seeing something that should be human and kind of sounds human and kind of is human but isn't human so do you think how do you think we can tackle that issue is it more about building those narratives successfully I think there is two aspects and again this the uncanny valley is something that you know is still we 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 are still to understand why when we create a humanoid, it does cause a level of discomfort. Where is this comfort coming from and how can we tackle it visually? Uh, why creating a humanoid? I, I, I think there are different reasons for that. And I think it can be a very dangerous um, a very dangerous uh, direction to take. We saw that virtual influencers started with the fashion industry. Um, 
we know that human body manipulation can be a tricky thing. You are building standards of beauty that are not achievable at all because they are designed inside computers. So um, I think that's all quite tricky. Well, in our specific case, we are creating animals, so it's it's really different. And in other influencers are also stylized versions. So we are we are understanding that what are the benefits of dealing with reality, but not necessarily embracing the photorealism or or building another human. I think there is a lot of reflection that should come in the work of creating another human. Why are you choosing to create another human and not work with a human? What do you lose and what do you gain? And I think um, there is it comes with a lot of responsibility as well. Um, so uh, I, I, when I started studying virtual influencers three years ago, which has been a passion of mine, when I started coming out, I was fascinated by, uh, if, you, if you were to see Lil Michela, which is one of the most successful virtual influencers on Instagram, she has over 2.5 million followers. What I was in love about her account, it wasn't how she looked, but I was impressed about how much story they were able to create only with Instagram captions. Suddenly I knew who she was, what she was doing, what was happening in her life. And I was learning about my life by following her, which is what real uh, influencers um, can deliver. I think the bottom line is when creating humanoids, we have to be very careful. There's a lot of responsibility and we need to... um, I would say approach the subject always aiming how can this project deliver a positive impact Mm -hmm. because that's what we need right now. It's not about taking advantage of the the technology. It's about how can we use the technology to add something to our world that clearly needs help from every every direction. Entertainment industry, science, uh, anyone that can help is very welcome. And I would say that this is the most appropriate mindset when dealing with um, humanoids. And it definitely sounds like that's something that this project brings together beautifully, the science and the storytelling for truly a good purpose, because at the end of the day, it's obviously all about raising awareness of and hopefully saving some of these incredible, incredible creatures. Um, so I have a final, a final fun question as we're running out of time uh, that I'd like to put to both of you. Perhaps we start with you, Bruna, first. If you could pick just one, I know it's really hard because <laughs> they're all amazing, which is your favorite edge animal that everyone listening to this should immediately go and Google? It's a really, 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 really hard question. Uh, it, it goes in phases. Uh, but I would say that at the present moment, my favorite edge species is the eye because I find fascinating how such a striking looking uh, animal can also be so delicate, fragile, and vulnerable. So I think it's a very, very, very precious species. And what about you, Diego? Yeah, it is. It is truly a challenge. Um, there's, there's such a diversity uh, in edge species. It, it really is. It really is hard. I, I'm. I'm maybe gonna gonna go uh, to the other the other end and say the pangolin. Um, which is, of course, yet another reason why you know, listeners have to check out the, our YouTube channel, with, which features not just the eye, but also uh, the pangolin. I, I think the pangolin really is, um, it is just so odd in so many different ways um, that um, it is just, uh, I think, really uh, something to, 
it is just perplexing. And I think that's probably what I what I really like really like uh, about it. I think my personal favorite has to be the kakapu. It's a large flightless parrot. Look it up now. It's incredible. Uh, well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on the show today. And thank you for listening to Sideload. If you'd like to get in touch with the Sideload team, you can reach us at sideloadedelman.com. Be sure to check out the the On the Edge Conservation YouTube channel. Um, guys, if there's anywhere that they can go, where should they go to, where should listeners go to find the 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 YouTube channel. Uh, so our YouTube channel is on the edge. Uh, at the moment, we have vlogs from Lexi and Eric, the pangolin, but there is a new character joining the gang this December, and I will uh, advise you to subscribe in order to not miss the new character. And uh, most importantly, please don't forget to follow Lexi the II on Instagram and Eric the Pangolin on Instagram because you can get a lot of insights on their daily lives, what they're up to in London and, and what are they doing and how you can learn more about the species as well. Incredible. You heard it here. Follow them on Instagram. I definitely will be after this. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and um, goodbye for now.